Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 12 of Revelation, establishing that the church did not replace Israel and that though Satan accuses us, we are justified in Christ, our rock. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Revelation in chapter 12. We're in an exciting section of the study this morning. Praise the Lord. I'm going to read from context beginning in verse 1. Revelation 12 and verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was to be born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Well, we broke into this this chapter last time we were together, and as we were looking at this, there's a lot of symbolism contained here, and as you guys know, that as, as we look at things like this in the Bible, that there are many who find symbolic meanings in everything, and that can be a very wrong approach. I do believe that much of what we study in the Bible is very literal, and it's laid out for us, and if the interpretation is there to take it literally, we should do that. However, there are times when we do come Come across passages where there is symbolism to be interpreted. Now, as we look at that, we're not left to pick and choose where that is on our own. It generally makes it clear to us that we're looking at something symbolic. The context itself gives us the sense that we're looking at something symbolic, and that is the case with this particular passage that we've come to now here in Revelation. We're looking at this, this sign that John says has appeared in heaven, and he sees this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and her head the garland of 12 stars and she has this child that she's giving birth to and of course we concluded from our study last week that we are looking at the nation of Israel which is that woman and the child would be who? Jesus Christ. And then he talks about this next sign that he sees appearing in the heaven, this great fiery red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his head, and this tail that draws a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And he stands before the woman who was giving birth to the child, and, and he was prepared to devour the child. And we know that fiery red dragon is clearly a depiction of whom? of Satan, right? And, and clearly the illusion here is to more than just Satan in his original form, but also in his future form as he takes on the persona of Antichrist here on the earth. And we'll come to all of that when we get into chapter 13. But it is a truth that Satan has long desired to destroy uh, both the woman, right, Israel, and also the child to which she gave birth to, which is Jesus Christ, has sought to destroy Jesus. We know that because even before he was born, Satan was already moving on the hearts of, of the king, you know, of Herod to, to put to death those children that would be born two years and under the male children. 
children, and so he has sought to destroy Jesus, and he certainly sought to destroy him as he was there at the cross. In fact, Satan thought he found victory over Jesus at the cross, but I like that old song. Um, uh, Carmen did it years ago. You may remember it where it talks about Jesus going into the grave and Satan and the demons are rejoicing, and it's kind of like, what's that? You know, on the third day, you know, the heart starts thumping again, and Jesus is alive and, and has victory, and Satan is foiled once again. And so, of course, we know that he's still at work, and he's still trying to destroy the nation of Israel even today. And as I alluded last week, he's even tried to do that through the church. I hope none of you sitting here today have given yourself over to what I absolutely believe is an errant teaching of replacement theology, whereby the church has now replaced Israel, and that Israel has no place in the plan of God. And that is even leading today in many circles to an anti-Semitism that should not exist. And as we look at the scriptures, we know that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. All you have to do is read Romans, uh, in particular chapters 9, 10, and 11, to hear Paul's heart. And if you can do that without a set of glasses on that, that you've heard theologically from somebody that said, we've replaced Israel, and you look at it just in the context of which is spoken, you know that Paul is saying very clearly that he's not finished with the nation of Israel. But yes, we are in a time and we are in a season where God is giving attention to the Gentiles, to the church, and to the believing Jews who are part of the church. But it doesn't mean because we're in this period that God is finished with the nation of Israel. He is not finished with the nation of Israel. And that is one of the reasons why I'm a firm believer that as we approach the end times and we approach the things we're studying here about the tribulation, that we, the church, will not be here when the tribulation begins because the tribulation is really the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time when God will be turning his focus back to finishing the work with the Jews and with the nation of Israel. It'll be a time in which they'll be pressed so hard by Satan and by his minion Antichrist and by the world that's following Antichrist, that there will be a profession of Christ by a believing remnant in that day. But God is not finished with the nation of Israel just yet, and will never be finished with them, to be honest with you. But here is that symbolism. We looked at it. We left off last week. We left off in verse 7, I'm sorry, in verse 6, where it, or verse 5, rather, where it says, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, clearly talking about Jesus, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Of course, that's speaking of Jesus after his death and his resurrection. But then in verse 6, it says, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And we know that that length of time is how long? three and a half years, correct, by the Jewish calendar, by the Hebrew calendar. And I believe that this clearly, based on the passage and things we've studied so far, is talking about the last three and a half years of the total seven-year period of tribulation that we're dealing with. But it says here that she fled into the wilderness. Israel, this woman, Israel, John says, will flee to a place that God has prepared for her protection from Antichrist, will be waging war against her in this moment. But where is this place that she'll be fleeing to? Do we know where this place is? I would argue, I think we do. I think we do. This is a passage of scripture that's actually gotten a lot of attention by biblical scholars, especially in recent years. And, and there are many, myself included, who, who believe that this place in the wilderness where Israel will flee when she's being persecuted by Antichrist uh, and where he's going to supernaturally protect them is actually a place called Petra. 
you may know of Petra. Petra is located in the country of Jordan. It's about 10, 180 miles south of the capital city of Amman and about 60 miles south of Jerusalem. So you figure Jerusalem would be over here. You can see the Dead Sea here. Jerusalem would be up in here. And there's Petra. And so uh, many of you have probably seen the pictures of Petra, um, even though you might not have realized it if you've ever watched that awesome movie, Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade. Do you remember The Last Crusade? Uh, the final one that they made. Then you've seen Petra. Because at the very end of that movie, the last part of that movie, it was actually filmed in Petra. Here's slide number two. This is the entrance to Petra. It literally is a walled city, a cliffed city. And Petra, just like you've seen in the movie, it's, it's literally a hidden city with a very, very narrow entryway carved through a, a what's called a steep, really a steep canyon that kind of leads into it. And the main entrance is a canyon measuring 6,000 feet long as the crow flies, and it's only about 20 feet wide at its widest point. Most of the passage is actually only 12 feet wide, very narrow. And so the walls of the canyon are immensely tall. Most ranging from about five to six hundred feet. Uh, slide three, if you will, please. We'll give you a picture of the canyon. You can see that. You can actually visit Petra today. Some of the tours to Israel will actually take you in there. Uh, but Petra, of course, is in Jordan. And so here's the entryway. You might remember that in the movie, The Ride and the Horse. Of course, that's fiction. We're about to talk about nonfiction in a moment. But you can see the passage. If you'll bring up the next slide, please. That's as you come to the end of it, and now you're getting inside the city itself as you're coming into it. And um, as a result of these natural features, uh, Petra is virtually impregnable uh, by conventional means in terms of, of being able to get into it if you were going to try to assault it. So once inside its walls, what you find are these dwelling places that are, that are carved right into the rock cliffs that surround and protect it. The next slide, please. You can see that. People actually had dwelled in this like a city. In fact, it's uninhabited at present, but it's been estimated that Petra can actually house a population the size of Manhattan within its walls. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And there are a number of reasons why a lot of people believe that Petra may be this place that's being spoken of here in this passage where the Jews will flee to during the tribulation. First of all, historically, you can take that off now, thanks. Uh, first of all, historically, Petra is a place where the Jews sought refuge in the past. Historically, it's a place where they sought refuge in the past. In fact, historians tell us that during the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, many of the Jews fled to and took refuge in Petra. And this could, like many other events, be a foreshadowing of a greater fulfillment yet to come in the future at some point when this event occurs in the book of Revelation. Secondly, there appears to be scriptural support for such a notion. Scripture elsewhere seems to indicate that, that it is a location that will be kept out of the reach of Antichrist during the tribulation. Consider what Daniel chapter 11 and verse 41 tells us. This is Daniel chapter 11 and verse 41. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, Jordan today is located in a landmass that once encompassed Edom, and Petra is located in Jordan, so Petra would be a part of Edom. And so based on this scripture, we see that the stage will be set for the Jews to possibly flee here, as this will be an area that will be out of Antichrist's reach, according to scripture. 
I also consider something that Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 21. Isaiah 2, verse 10 through 21, where Isaiah is speaking prophetically to the Jews about the great day of the Lord, which is another reference to the time of God's judgment upon them and upon the earth in the future. Here's what it says in verse 10 of Isaiah 2. Enter into the rock. Oh, wake up. Do you hear that? Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up. And upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Now, notice all of the references to entering into the rock and going into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth. Now, in one sense, we fully understand these to be references to how people in general will want to flee from and hide from God's wrath during the tribulation. But many also believe that this is a two-fold prophetic statement where he is speaking to one group in a generic sense, but he's also speaking specifically to another group of people, but in a different sense. It could very well be that these references to taking refuge in the rock, to to hiding in the rocks, in the caves of the earth, could very well be a reference to Israel taking refuge in these last days in the rocks, which could very well be the rock cliffs of Petra. Third, there are some practical things that could point to Petra being the place. First of all, it's interesting to note that later in our passage in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14, we'll be given a statement of what's being said here in Revelation 12, 6, except there there it will word things just a bit differently. It'll say this, Revelation 12, 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. Some have speculated that this is a reference to the United States being involved in moving the Jews to this wilderness location, wherever it might be, since the eagle is our national emblem. That's possible. It's a possible scenario, but I tend not to think that that's what's being referenced here. I tend to go along with those who believe that this is simply a description of God divinely intervening on their behalf because of his protective covering that's often referred to in terms of an eagle's wings. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10 and 11, where it refers to God's protective relationship with his people in that very context. It says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, he found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. You see how God protects his people, Israel. 
like a mother eagle. I don't know if you know much about eagles, you know. I've gotten into them a little bit because my wife's class, they have those live video cams where they're watching the eagle in the nest. I never get to see the cool part. The cool part on the story is where the mother begins to move her young out of the nest to get them to fly. And one of the things she does, if you've ever seen an eagle's nest, it's kind of nasty looking. I mean, it's just really prickly. But she really makes it prickly when she wants to get them out of there. She starts dragging all kinds of stuff in there that as they're getting bigger, it's poking them. And they can't stand being in the nest anymore. And eventually, they're just kind of pushed out of the nest as they grow just by the natural makeup of the nest itself. And then they flop out and they begin to go. Well, you know, it kind of be like me in the Army jumping out of an airplane, which I never saw any good reason to do. But I would have been like this, you know. And the baby eagle pretty much does that, just begins to fall. And what the mother does is she doesn't let him fall. She just kind of swoops around and eventually she'll get right underneath him and catch him. And then you know what she does? Takes him right back up to the nest, puts him in again. And we go through it again until finally that little eagle begins to find its wings, begins to fly. But the mother's is never far away. The mother's protective care for that eagle. She carries him. We sing those songs, those beautiful Christian songs talking about being carried on eagle's wings. That's where it comes from. It's this illusion, but the real illusion to, to being carried on eagle's wings beyond what he does for us is really to the nation of Israel. And I think we see it being, playing out right here in this passage. It's not talking, I don't think, about the United States moving, although God could certainly use us to do that to this safe location. But I think it's really a reference to what God will be doing for them in this day. And it is what he does for us. I just want you to know, you know what? Uh, and, and, and I understand the primary references to Israel, but, but I don't want to minimize how God does this for us, how he protects and keeps us like this too. You know, I mean, like a mother eagle, he wants to, to strengthen our spiritual wings. That's important. He's, he wants to get us out and get us flexing those muscles spiritually so that we can learn to fly. But at the same time, he does it in a way, you know, where he's protecting us, where he's keeping us, where he's training us up. Now, he uses the difficulties of life to strengthen us in our flight, right? That's what pushes us out of the nest sometimes. I, I sometimes say, you know, when I'm dealing with people and praying for people, you know, I'm, I don't know if they like it or not, but sometimes, especially when I see them just really struggling spiritually, not, not giving themselves over to the Lord, sometimes I, my prayer is, Lord, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. I understand that prayer might bring difficult things into their life, but you know what? Sometimes you got to get shoved out of the nest, that you've made yourself comfortable in. Sometimes you got to get pushed out of that nest of comfort so that you can find your wings and begin to fly. And it's the Lord's grace and mercy that does that. I mean, James 1, 2 through 4, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith is what produces patience and, 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 and letting patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete lacking nothing. Getting you out of the nest so you learn to fly, you see? First uh, Peter chapter one, verses six and seven. First Peter one, six. In this you greatly rejoice. So now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Man, that little baby eagle fly, flopping out of the nest on its way down. This is the end. I'm going to die. You know, flop, flop, flop. But it's not. It's not. And, and it's all about, you know, for us like that, man, the Lord pushes us out of the nest. Man, we're grieved. We're grieved when he makes life uncomfortable for us. But then Peter goes on, he says, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, that's God's intent for us. 
he's going to protect us and he's going to keep us, but it doesn't mean he's not going to allow things into our lives that he knows in the end we need so that not only will we be strengthened in our spiritual walk in this life, but, but ultimately that we're being prepared for what he really has as the end goal. And that is that we would be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus, whether it's because he raptures us or we stand before him in death. But that day that we set our eyes upon him, that we could hear that well done. And our lives would be living praise to him. But that's only possible when he shoves us out of the nest at times. When we face difficulties, when we face trials, when we find ourselves outside of our comfort zone, it's only because God has shaken up the nest. And in a sense, he pushes us out over the edge, but never to harm us, only to strengthen us so that we'll learn to soar like eagles. Like a mother eagle, he never abandons us. He never lets us fall to our destruction. He's there, sometimes just waiting until the last moment to catch us. You ever been there? Or he just swooped in and caught you just before you hit the ground, you know? But he's there, and he does catch us. And if we'll only understand this, I honestly believe that if we'd only understand this, if we'd only trust in his process when these things happen to us, if we'll only wait on and rest in his love, even in the difficult places of life, we're going to find that we will rise up on wings like eagles. We'll find that we will learn to fly. Isaiah is right, as he says in Isaiah 40 and verse 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But we got to wait. We got to wait and we got to trust in the Lord who like a mother eagle promises to never let us fall. He might allow things to come into our lives that are scary and at times are extremely difficult, but he's doing it for one purpose and one purpose alone, to strengthen our wings and to teach us to fly. It's what he's doing. And in this day, like a mother eagle, it'll be a time in which he'll be carrying his people, Israel, on his wings. Oh, they're going to be learning to fly too because this is the time that they're going to come to faith in their Messiah, you see. They're going to be learning to fly too, but it'll also be a time when he'll be teaching them this as, as the difficulty he, he, that they're going to be facing in, in this moment is designed to lead them to the one who enables them to fly to Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. So I don't see this reference to eagle's wings as being about the U.S. helping them out, although it is certainly possible. But I see it as a reference to what the Lord himself will be doing with them during this time. But, but here's another interesting connection worth noting. One of the first things you see guarding the entrance to Petra is an image carved into the rocks. And guess what it's an image of? Can you bring up slide six? Just, just a connection worth noting. There are also some interesting events that, that are happening today that are worth noting. I, I've not confirmed this on my own, but there's a trusted friend of mine who's a pastor, and he said that years ago, it's been going on for years, he said, but years ago, a little less today because of some of the issues that are associated, but years ago, he said they were on trips over to Israel leading some tours, and he said that when they were going through the Jordanian desert on the way to Petra, he saw young men running through the desert. And he asked his Jewish tour guide, what is this? And he said, oh, he said, those are Israeli boys. It's kind of a rite of passage. They run to Petra and back. They run to Petra and back. And he said to me, he says, you know, Randy, he said, it's almost like God has a homing beacon in them. Maybe this is the ones that'll lead them there. Who knows? You know, but like a homing beacon. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.